Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I'm joined today by Sean Meads-Williams. She's an award-winning freelance writer, editor of the weekly media industry newsletter, Freelance Writing Jobs, co-editor of the award-winning lifestyle newsletter, Tigers Are Better Looking, and author of The Pajama Myth, The Freelance Writer's Survival Guide. Sean, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Penny. How are you? I'm very good. And I know you haven't been very well, so I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. I'm recovering from COVID very, very slowly. Um, so it's actually quite nice just to have a sit in a cup of tea this morning. So, <laughs> Well, I'm not going to push you too hard, but I just, first <laughs> of all, I'm going to say that um, I'm so thrilled to have you on. Um, you are responsible for quite a lot of the freelance writing that I've had. So thank you very much. First of all, I definitely owe you uh, a drink. (laughs) Um, Your, your newsletter is how I um, came to know you uh, freelance writing jobs, which first of all, let's just introduce it because if any of the listeners are not subscribed to this newsletter, you need to do so immediately. And I will put the link in the show notes. Um, It's such an incredible newsletter that um, every week um, in your inbox, lots of incredible writing opportunities for writers based in the UK. Um, and so that has led to the pyjama myth. And, um, and so let's start here, which um, the pyjama myth is out now. It's published by Unbound. How did the book come about? I think it, it started as a little nugget of a thing where I was I was getting so many emails all the time from other writers, just really having no idea about the pitching process or what to do if invoices were unpaid. And the questions I were getting were all the same. Um, and I know that they were all the same because I, in, I was getting so many. I tried to answer as many as possible via email, but instead of repeating myself over and over again, I started sort of writing template answers in a document and it was very, very rare after a while that anyone asked me anything outside of the document. And I was like, this, mm. this needs to be something else. Like if the same questions are coming up over and over again, and there's nowhere central for people to find this information, then it needs to be shared. And I'd been talking to Unbound about various projects and ideas for a while. Um, and after a very, very long, long process, it the actual commissioning process was very quick. Um, I was, I'd been working with a different agent at the time and I knew it was a book and they, they didn't necessarily agree that it should be a book. Um, so we parted ways and I pitched it to Unbound at one in the morning the next day. And <laughs> we had a meeting that same day um, and it was it was all done dusted. That was a week before my wedding and I read, I got the contract through while I was on my honeymoon. Um, everything happened very quickly. Um, but it really is, it's, it's always supposed to be, I think I wanted it to be a helpful but honest look at freelancing. Um, I really hate when freelancing is talked about as this silver bullet to work problems and office problems. And I think the pandemic has exacerbated that quite a lot. 
Um, I don't think freelancing is for everyone. I don't think freelancing is the answer to open plan offices and how horrible they are. Um, Freelancing comes with its own challenges and its own Mm. set of unwritten rules. And I really wanted to kind of just cut through a lot of that rubbish. Um, And I haven't necessarily had a, a traditional freelance experience although I say that and I have no idea what a traditional freelance experience would be because (laughs) I don't think I don't think anyone has a traditional experience with freelancing everybody approaches it in a different way whether it's someone who's got kids whether it's someone who is freelancing on the side of a full-time job or any sort of way of working I think if you're freelancing if you're invoicing for work you're freelancing and any way of doing that is valid Oh, I think that's um, so important to talk about because as someone, I have been freelance for 20 years almost now, 19, 20 years, something like that, as first of all, as a photographer, a photographer's assistant, then as a photographer, and now as a writer. Um, and so, so much of, of what's in here, I completely relate to. But what's so funny is, as you say, everyone approaches it in a different way. I've read advice um, where people have said, you know, well, have your full-time job and then make sure you've got X amount of clients booked in every single month before you then make the leap to. And I'm like, that's a very specific situation. (laughs) My life has never looked like that. I've literally not had a full-time job since I was 23. Um, So it's just, it is, it is, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I think, sorry, I think advice like that actually comes from quite a privileged place. Um, I Mm. talk a little bit in the book about this idea that freelancers are supposed to have, like, I think, six months salary saved before they make that leap. And while I think it's great to have a buffer (laughs) and savings, I genuinely think that six months salary is so much money. And I'm just saying, so much money. It's conservatively covering your rent and bills for six months is it's it's six grand. And the idea that you're supposed to save that before you leave a job that you're almost certain quite possibly not happy in. It's it's shutting the door on so many people. It's shutting the door on working class writers and it's shutting the door on underprivileged Mm. writers and. And it's just not necessary. Um, I think freelancing is, a. there there are always times with freelancing when everything is a little bit hairy. And I talk in the book about how how much I lived kind of hand to mouth in the first few years of freelancing when I wasn't really on top of my finances. But I think you, you need to trust that you're doing the right thing and work, work does appear, work work comes when you ask for it work comes when you're pushing for it and I think there's a little bit there's a little bit of truth in fortune favoring the bold um and I think every freelancer knows that yeah I think that's really true because also um in a way um the lack of safety net as a freelancer is what makes you bold um I've done all sorts of bold things in the last 20 years because I know I've really needed to make some money, Um, including following up on some of the pitches, you know, that are suggested in your newsletter and going, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be bold. And you know what? It pays off sometimes. It really does. And not always, of course, but but when it doesn't pay off, the the benefit of some of trying to do some of those bold things is that you get braver and you get better at pitching and you get better at, um, at, you know, putting yourself forward for work. Um, and so in a way, the lack of safety net is 
almost a little bit necessary <laughs> for certainly some kinds of personalities, possibly me, um, <laughs> for kind of really pushing you forward. Um, we're making it sound so appealing, aren't we? Um, <laughs> the thing is, I think actually sometimes I go the other way. I get incredibly nervous about pitching when I know my rent depends on it or my mortgage rather. Um, and Well, this is also true. Yes. It's, yeah. I'm, I, I really need a buffer and I worry that people think freelance writers have dozens of clients every week and honestly I think we'd run ourselves into the ground if we had that many clients I think most of us are happy with five or six on the go at the same time and then if another yeah. one appears or we lose a client there are other options but the idea that we're writing for 20 different publications at the same time is very rarely the case and I think the security of knowing that I have my rent my mortgage so you tell I haven't owned a house for long um, so I keep saying rent rather than mortgage um so but having that covered meaning that I don't have to worry about means that I can afford to be a little bit brave and not just that but yes also knowing yep. that knowing that my finances were in order was really important to me like mm -hmm. making and, sure and that I know I know what's coming in what's going out and just being aware of the patterns in my own own finances and my own freelance year it's it's all helpful it may, that that business side of freelancing is what helps me be braver I think yeah and there's so much wonderful advice in the book about that so for anyone who's and I think um you know the the, the listeners that we have, lots of them are working on books. And, and this is why I think it's such an important thing for us to talk about, because um, when you're an author, you, you do have to, you have to do freelance writing. You have to, when your book comes out, you, you write articles and, um, and pitching articles is a big part of promoting your book. Um, and so I would really recommend that anyone listening, if you have a book in the pipeline, if it's if, if you're going to be publishing in the next couple of years um, and you've got that ahead of you, even if you haven't started doing any freelance writing yet, I would highly recommend the book because it's just, there's so much fantastic advice around pitching. And I know pitching itself is, um, can be such a terrifying thing. I know for me, when I get out of the habit of doing it, I don't know if you feel like this, but once I get out of the habit of doing it, because I'm busy doing other kinds of writing, it can take me a while to kind of get that sort of boldness and that braveness back again to start kind of cold pitching ideas. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think hitting send on a pitch to any new editor is always a little bit daunting. Kind of like, what what do we think is going to happen? Do we think that an editor is sitting at their computer and they're going to get a pitch and they're just going to laugh at it or something like that? And I've, maybe we think that, but it's like, no one has the time. No one is that mean. All editors are looking yeah. for is brilliant articles. They are itching to find a great article in their inbox, no matter how busy they are. And I think we, I pitch differently when I pitch stuff that I'm really, really in love with and ideas that really, really excite me. And I'd very much got out of the habit of pitching at the start of this year. And I made a promise to myself this year that I would not pitch anything I wasn't excited about. And I would only pitch stuff mm. that, that really, that really fueled me. And, and it's taking longer. It's like, it's, it's not as a media, but I've loved every single piece I've written this year. And I mean, we're only in April, um, oh. but it's <laughs> it's changed my approach to coming to work each morning and sitting at my desk and just going, like, actually, 
I'm going to follow up on that picture because I'm really excited about it. And I think following up is my, or the lack thereof, is my worst habit when it comes to pitching. I get really, really scared about going, hi, did you get my email? Like, wondering what you think of the pitch. I already sound pathetic just kind of recalling it back. (laughs) um, But it really scares me. It always has. And I think I've been freelance for over 15 years now and it still scares me. And I think it's okay to be scared of stuff in our jobs and I got yes. asked recently, like, what about failure in work? And I'm just like, it's not failing to find things difficult. It's not failing to struggle to speak to a complete stranger about an idea that you, where you are wearing your heart on your sleeve. It's it's entirely natural. And I think we put so much emphasis on, as freelancers, on personally getting something wrong. And I don't think people in staff Mm. jobs necessarily do that as much. We really carry a lot of emotional weight with freelancing. That's not to say people in staff jobs don't have their own issues and worries and pressures. They absolutely do. But I think freelancers have certainly, the mentality of it's our business, it's us in it, it's our time, it's it's usually in our homes all of that makes it a very very personal experience so of course Mm. pitching is scary because we're not pitching words on a page we're pitching a little bit little bit of us I think yeah no I think that's so true and and on the follow-up thing I've that I really turned a corner with that recently, actually, the um, the being able to follow up without having too much anxiety about it. And what helped me was I kept reminding myself I have a very busy inbox like most freelancers and business owners mm-hmm. do. Um, I've recently, I'm just, you know, was thinking last night, somebody asked me if I could um, do a, uh, a Q&A for their newsletter. Um, and I was like, yeah, of course they are. They DM'd me on Instagram mm-hmm. and um, they sent me that day the email. And now I I didn't, I couldn't do it right that minute because I think I was picking my kids up from school or something like that. And now it's been a week and I don't know where that email is. And what I yeah. really want is for this person to send me a little follow-up going, oh, just checking that um, that you got that email and that you, because now I'm going to have to spend like half an hour trawling through my inbox trying to find out that, <laughs> that because I can't remember her name and I really want to do it for her. It was a really sweet message and the newsletter sounds great and I'd be really happy to do it. And now I've lost it in my inbox. <laughs> and so when I'm um, <laughs> like, that's a perfect example of where a follow-up is actually just a gentle little nudge. Oh, I'm just, just checking, you know, and I've given an appropriate amount of time for you to read this. Um, But I find that sometimes I get so, I've got so many different things going on in my business and personal life that I actually appreciate a reminder occasionally, not like 10, like don't email me millions of times, but like I appreciate when somebody just is a little reminder and I'm like, I'm like, they're actually doing something good for me. Like they're (laughs) and so that's now the head that I put on when I'm sending up a follow-up email. (laughs) I think one of the issues that we have when we're approaching editors, especially ones we don't know, is like a lot of them belong to huge institutions that we have read and mm. examined and been probably obsessed with since we were very young, in the case of a lot of magazines, if they're still standing after the pandemic. And that, again, it carries a lot of weight. And it's it's not just emailing an editor. And I think one of the things that I mention in the book is 
about the best the best thing I can do with pitching and it's just something that I recommend to everyone is to realize that only you can tell the story that you are pitching and to tell that and realize that you're not going up to an editor and saying it's like please can I have some money for some words it's you're not doing that you're saying hey I've got a brilliant story and I'd really like to share it with your readers because I think your magazine is the best place for it and when you have that in mind when you're pitching your pitching changes you aren't it's Mm. it's not from a place of desperation or gratitude it's from a place of professionalism and understanding that your story is absolutely great and someone should really, really want to publish it and you'd like to work with that editor on it. And when you change that, mm. it, the process becomes much more collaborative. And even if it's a rejection, I find with that approach, even you never come out and say it, but it just changes how much like the positive spin on your on your article pitch is so much different and I I almost always get a response to my pitches now I've changed with that approach so um, even if you don't get a commission off that you you still that we're just sorry (laughs) I think there's a delay which is making us a bit of a delay (laughs) I think opening up conversation to me with editors is a really really important part of the job and that can be much more important than a one-off commission I don't think you can make a freelance career on a one-off commission Um, my first my first ever commission happened a week after a pitch I'd sent but wasn't right and I've kind of remembered that that just because an editor says no doesn't mean they're saying no to you they're saying no to the one idea that you sent and you're a freelance writer you're a writer you're an author you're creative you have hundreds of ideas a week so you can't run out of those yeah and this is so true because I think when I've kind of pitched in that vein as well and um and you can really feel it when you're doing it um when you're pitching in the way of like like almost like you're doing it in service you know that what you have to offer is valuable to the readers of that publication um but um but also um you know, I've had so many positive responses to those pitches, even if the pitch wasn't picked up. And I've then often gone on to be commissioned by them later on, yeah. as you say. Um, so it's a bit of a win-win situation. Yeah, it is. Um, but also, I, I loved your advice in the book. And this is something that I'm, I'm, because I work with with writers doing nonfiction book proposals, it's really, really similar. And I think it's so, so crucial, this idea that, um, that you're, you're pitching a story not an idea um and I think that's such brilliant advice and and it's sort of it sounds like um it doesn't sound like very much but there's a there's a there's a massive difference between an actual story and just an idea there is there is so much difference between the two and I think I think one of the examples is that people will often pitch something along the lines of I like pizza and it's like that that's not a story like wanting to write about pizza isn't a story it is a topic and it sounds really simple and to people who are pitching a lot regularly that sounds obvious it's but having worked with writers on their pitches I know how easy it is to get caught up in a topic that you're really interested in rather than really nailing it and pinpointing it and to me that research and that pinpointing is the most exciting bit 
and I love that Mm. um but other people can find it really difficult and I think it's it often comes from a place of lack of confidence um and just being too worried to explore our own ideas which again to some Mm. can count can sound really strange but when you're not sure about something the research process can be really daunting especially for new writers and the more you do it the easier it gets the more fun it gets um and I think if you can't answer the question and then what happened when you're writing a pitch it's not a pitch um and and I think um just answering I always remember that editors should have very practical questions when they're reading your pitch it's like how how long will this take to write what can what images do it, does it need? Like Those are the questions you want an editor to be asking. You don't want an editor to be asking, why do I care about this? Why will my readers care? What happened to what happens in this story? An editor should know that. So you've got to explore mm. it. And if you if you're making an editor ask those questions, they don't have time to go back to you to ask them. So they just won't. And I think they're the pitches that get radio silence, not because they're bad, but because it takes too long to respond to them. It's very easy to say a quick no to someone and it's very easy to say yes. But if a pitch is wishy-washy, no matter how many questions you ask as an editor, you're still going to end up with a maybe grey in the wash article. So I think... That is such good advice. That's such good advice because I think I think that's true, isn't it? It's um, you know, editors are so busy. I'm, you know, from my work as a photographer, I know that the that the staff are skeletal compared yeah. to what they used to be on magazines, and they're doing so much work. And what they're desperate for is people to bring them fully formed ideas that they can just say yes to yeah. and go off and do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you're giving them a massive gift by being able to do that. It's and absolutely, and I think it's an ill thought out pitch. Is if you can imagine just asking someone if you can write about pizza for 500 pounds, like no one is going to give you money for that. Like it's what you're doing is you're outlining a contract. And as freelancers, we are very lucky that we get to outline an initial idea for a contract. But like, I know I've done my job well when I get a brief back from an editor and it's almost exactly the same as my pitch. Like that mm. means that my pitch was yeah. absolutely bang on. You can go back and forth on a brief and make that work for a publication and discuss how it might change. But why on earth would an editor give you a pit, give you money when all you've said is, I'd like to write about pizza? No, no one is yeah. going to do that. They can't, an editor can't explain to an art department what illustrations need to be commissioned. An editor can't explain to advertising departments what what adverts need to be sold in next to that article and that's the business side of a magazine that you really really need to think about because otherwise your pitches won't get a response and it's I know I really want to say that it's all about the writing but if you're not looking at it like a business and if you're not considering that an editor has to look at it as a business you're doing yourself a disservice I think and you've got it's you've got good ideas and there are nuggets of good ideas and developing them and keeping keeping on developing them and looking at what they could be it's the potential of that means that you're 
you're exploring a part of writing that's really exciting. You're discovering new publications that you won't have thought of otherwise. And you're opening yourself up to a lot more interesting writing. Um, Mm. I think one of the things that I love about um, my newsletter, Freelance Writing Jobs, is that I get a lot of emails saying, I did not know there was so many different avenues for freelancing and Mm. different ways of different publications, different ways of sharing your work and things to pitch for and opportunities. And once you once you start researching and playing around and not not penning yourself into one publication that you were really set on, it opens up and it opens up an entirely new audience for your work and a new revenue stream and possibilities. Well, let's talk about the newsletter for a moment because um, it's it's such a brilliant resource. So so how did it all start? Oh, um, I had the I had the worst six months of freelancing of my career um, in 2017, um, and I I spoke to a lot of people in that six months, and everyone was saying how difficult that that bit of time was um there was just there was no wiggle room in it at all and I'd spent quite a long time just being very stressed I had to um I had to postpone my English literature MA halfway through um I couldn't I couldn't afford the fees and then as freelancing tends to everyone everything picked up at the start of 2018 and I was suddenly left with this job searching resources that I'd been working on daily and suddenly all of these jobs that I did not need anymore were flooding into me and like all of these I kept on seeing all of these opportunities I'm just like I've spent six months sifting through jobs boards and finding opportunities and looking over the same pages but you still have to search through them to find Mm. the ones that are actually for freelancers rather and actually paid and there was no place that just collected ones for freelancers in the UK. So I made one and I was supposed to be doing my dissertation at the time. Um, and I definitely, <laughs> I remember a conversation uh, with my husband where I was just like, this would be a good idea, but I won't do it because I need to work on my dissertation. I've got to write about Jean Reese. She's very important. And um, then he went to the pub one night and um, by the time he'd come back, I just go, I just wanted to see how long it would take. Um, and I'd set it up and a landing page <laughs> had gone live. And 400 people had subscribed before last orders. And it it started, it launched on Valentine's Day in 2018. Um, and it was the, one of the best things I've ever done. Um, I love oh. it. I really, I really do. I, well, I, I- I can imagine it's it's I mean it's such a joy to get first of all it's it sounds like it might be quite dry but I can promise <laughs> listeners it is not it is so much fun it's so much fun to read um it's job filled with humor dull, there's always it? lots it's so dull job hunting is so yes. dull and this is like the most joyful job hunting newsletter you will ever yeah. get um there's always lots of very humorous gifts um, yeah. <laughs> um but also just um the way you describe the opportunities is always um, fun and tongue in cheek, and um, and the opportunities themselves are so diverse and interesting. Yeah. And like you say, it really opens your eyes to the kind of possibilities out there, because you put in opportunities of, um, for um, you know um, sort of 
paid writing residencies and copywriting as well as um you know uh editors who are looking for pictures and and it's such a big variety lots of social media content sort of stuff um it's it's really opened my eyes to what all the different freelance writers out there are doing and of course you know the newsletter will come in and and you know sort of 80% of it won't be relevant to me, but it'll be so fun to read anyway. But there'll be little bits and pieces every single time that will make you kind of think, oh, that's that's so interesting. I didn't know that editor was doing that yeah. position now. Or, you know, it's a really amazing way of keeping track of movement within the industry as well yeah. on top of everything else. And I think as well, like, just because at the moment you're not thinking of writing a play, like, absolutely fine, like, carry on. But maybe in six months there's a nugget of an idea or maybe actually yeah. you've been working on a short story but you're not brave enough and I think one of the reasons why I'm so everything is kind of placed with the same level of merit I think in the newsletter there's only space for I think 25 jobs is usually the the benchmark I think like everything that is in there has been handpicked um, I don't, I have a threshold for how much things pay. Um, I sift through a lot of average or let's be honest, very, very bad opportunities. I say opportunities in inverted mm. commas there. But yeah, I think if someone writes a call for pitch, write, writes a pitch after seeing something in the newsletter and applies to a writing residency and considers going to be a part-time lecturer in creative writing, all from the same email, I am happy. Um, and I really love that like, <laughs> I get, I do get emails from people who just say, I, it never occurred to them to be, to go off and be a creative writing tutor or like to, to write a book um the newsletter has been genuinely kind of the starting point for a lot of people's books and I love that it it makes me so happy oh, just to know that so that is so wonderful to be part it's life-changing of and I think especially in the pandemic um my audience doubled in the pandemic and it mm. stopped being this lovely thing I did each week and it suddenly became a lifeline and the pressure on that was actually quite a lot um like I had a lot of mm. people emailing or tweeting at me if the newsletter was late and I was still struggling with work and it was just this very difficult moment where people were frantic and fraught and absolutely terrified and the newsletter was there and the newsletter was still finding work it was more research but the mm. knowing freelancers knowing that the opportunities were there even if they weren't what they initially considered as freelance writing work was actually really really valuable that that sense of hope throughout the pandemic yeah. meant a lot to people I yeah think. I mean that's the thing even when I know that I'm not going to be pitching because I'm working on a bunch of different things um I still read the newsletter every single week because it it helps I feel like I have a bit more of an understanding about about who's working where and what's happening but also like you said you know maybe one day I will feel like writing a play and yeah, I will know it's... which newsletter to go back on and I have and to I say think... I have searched through old newsletters of yours looking because I'm like I know so-and-so works somewhere but I, yeah. I'm not quite sure and I know and I've searched back through your newsletters to find an editor that works at a particular <laughs> publication to confirm that I definitely did read that somewhere yeah. um it is just such an amazing resource um and and there's something about those 20 odd or 25 jobs coming in every week that you as you say is reassuring to know what's 
that there is work out there, that there's things happening yeah. in the industry. Um, and I guess I wanted to check to you, like in terms of um, how you pull those resources together, are, are you at a point now, because it's a very popular newsletter where you get you get sent um information directly from people who know that you have this newsletter and so they want their job or their opportunity to be part of the newsletter yeah um a lot of calls for pitches come directly to me usually the ones right at the top of the email um and I'm I'm still cautious oh, cautious is the wrong word I there is a lot of due diligence that comes with that process because when I think when your newsletter audience, when any audience gets big, you have a responsibility. So checks are made. I make sure the payment is good. I really push as much as I can to like make sure opportunities are as strong as they can be. So I won't list a writing prize if there's no option for um, free free entries for low income writers um, and just mm-hmm. having that conversation with people running writing prizes means that they push for that. Even if it doesn't happen immediately, they often come back and say, we've now got a sponsor for this. Like there are 50, 50 places for oh, low-income writers. Um, not mm-hmm. having discussions with companies about their rates not being high enough and getting them to push rates up, um, getting people to disclose rates. Um, it's, it's all really important work. It takes a long time, but it Mm. my my priority is and always will be freelancers first um it's it's not just a place for editors to get the word out for their for their job Uh, that's what twitter's for um but it's it's really important to to prioritize the people who need the jobs um and Mm. if that means that i'm strict it's because i have to be um and i will not I will never feature a job where people are paid to write more per hour. Um, so anything that involves kind of working yourself into the ground so you can earn $20, $20 an hour or something like that, I have no interest in it. Um, I think people should be paid a work mm. rate um, or, or a flat rate and earn that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm strict. I'm I'm welcoming and friendly, but I'm strict. Oh no, but this is what I think makes it um such a reliable newsletter for yeah. people who are receiving it because there is an editorial control happening with a newsletter, yeah. and um and this is why it's so popular because we trust you <laughs> as you know as subscribers we trust you, and I think as well like editors do as well because I I've built up a relationship with my audience and they know that they're getting a lot of emails but I also make sure yeah. that they are when a call for pitch comes to me directly it's as specific as possible because the last thing yeah. I want to do is send 400 emails to someone and have them all be just vague and wishy-washy and I think as well like not every editor not every um op- opportunity gets 400 responses um I'm always very wary of new writers thinking that there's so much competition because the newsletter's audience is quite large and it's not the case at all um I know I know that some some um opportunities are popular but I don't think there's any that are so overwhelmingly popular that people shouldn't apply um I'm always I always really want to yeah, encourage people to apply it's because 
it goes back to being brave, doesn't it? Um, it's yeah. just just like doing it because because you know you can and you know it's what you want and just saying yes, saying yes to the life you want is very much a freelance ethos that I believe in. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, um, that's so important. It's so important to not dismiss things just because you assume that lots of people are going to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many opportunities that are undersubscribed for those exact reasons, which, yeah. um, which, yeah, so it, exactly. It should, you should always, always be bold and apply for the things that really speak to you. Um, but so on that, on the newsletter front, you've, um, You've now made that um, an option to pay to have that newsletter for a yeah. very small amount of money each month, like for the cost of a coffee yeah. one, once a month. Um, you can get the the newsletter earlier. So if you are pitching really regularly and you know the newsletter is really, really useful for you for pitching, um, then it's so worth paying for. But I guess I wanted to talk to you about that decision as well because I know um, lots of authors have newsletters and um, lots of authors are advised to have newsletters. Some of them are paid some of them are unpaid but I wanted to talk to you about that process of making the decision to make their a paid option but also for your other newsletter your lifestyle newsletter um and how that has um how you've grown that and developed that and and what you use that newsletter for as well in both your I guess both from a kind of personal and professional point of view so the the decision to make to have a paid option for uh, freelance writing jobs was hard, and I wrestled with it a lot. Um, I think I had previously relied on advertising um, and donations, and as I mentioned earlier, that when my audience doubled in during the pandemic, uh, so too did my uh, Mailchimp fees. Um, and while mm. well, there's a lot yeah. I hate about MailChimp, I think for the purposes of my email, it's still the platform that works best for me. Um, but it's it's hundreds of pounds a month. And when yeah. the advertising dried up, I realized there was a few months where it was costing me money to run. And it doesn't just cost me money to run. It takes a day out of my week, sometimes a day and a half. And yeah. I was just saying, I am essentially yeah. paying to help other people find work. And I'm a nice person, but I don't yep. think I'm that oh. nice. Um, and and it was yeah. just it was just unsustainable. But even I know I knew that with a book coming out, I would have been mad to stop the newsletter, and and just I didn't want to. I don't want to. I've just I love the community that I've created, but it was it was incredibly hard just to realise that it wasn't working. And I had a good chat with um, Anna Cadrea Rado whom I ran the freelance writing awards with last year. Um, and we always have newsletter chats. Um, and she she was just like, just do it, do it like this. This will this will work. And I'd considered it in the past. And I don't know why it hadn't sat well with me. Just maybe it's just terribly British of not wanting to ask people for money. I don't know. Um, but people responded to it really well. Um, the idea mm. that you're that you can pay for something if you would like to. Um, And I think that was a key part. Um, I know when people sign up to the newsletter, sometimes it's out of curiosity, sometimes it's because they're genuinely looking for work, sometimes it's because they're desperate for work. And I don't Mm. want to... I don't want to be another barrier in the media industry for people finding work. It's just... It's not what I'm about at all. But 
girls still got to eat. So I think it's it's very yeah. much it's it's a really really nice balance between making sure I can I can eat um, and making sure that people aren't yeah. priced out of it. Um, and I don't think that's I think it's a nice balance. Um, I'm also starting to do uh, subscriber only events um, just to add more a little bit more for people who do sign up to the priority membership. Um, there's always um, tickets available to everybody, but again, if you want that access, it's just I don't I don't want people to lose out. Um, but I really want the newsletter to continue, and I don't think a, pull, a full paywall would be something that I'd ever be comfortable with. Um, so this mm. this works really well, and I'm really pleased that the newsletter is profitable um, because I want it to continue for a very long time because um, it helps people. Oh, I'm suffering. so pleased to hear that it's profitable because the thing is that, like, I I'm you know, making sure that our work is accessible to writers who can't afford things, or can't, um, you know, it's so important, but at the same time, it's unsustainable if we can't also make a living. And this is something as a writing coach, I'm <laughs> grappling with all the time. Um, um, it, it's, it needs to be sustainable to you um, because you're offering an amazing service that takes quite a lot of a huge amount of effort to put together. It's really obvious from the newsletters. It takes a huge amount of work to put them together. Um, so in order for us to be able to continue benefiting from that, it does need to be sustainable for you. And I can't write about being freelance and I can't write a freelance writer's survival guide if I'm not taking my own advice and I, I need to yeah. like, as a freelancer you do have to put yourself first and you do have to rejig when things aren't working and if I approached if I'd approached the newsletter as a freelance client I'd have I'd have stopped doing that job a long time ago the way it was running and and it was just yeah but yeah. it's also nice to discuss that with other freelancers and with other newsletter writers and so it's like this isn't working what can I do and I'm so always so grateful to have other freelancers and other women to write with and work with and just team up with and just it's it feels it feels like having colleagues even even though you're on the opposite sides of London or in the case of Tigers are better looking on the opposite yeah. sides of the country. Um, I have a co-writer, Laura Brown, and she is based in Dundee. Um, and obviously I, I'm in London. Um, so we haven't seen each other since my wedding in 2019. Um, and we talk almost every day. Oh my goodness. So it's, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. And so how, um, so talk to me about that newsletter because this is a different kind of newsletter. Um, so, um, which, which direction does it go in and how does it sort of fit in, I guess, with your, with your career in general? So Tigers are Better Looking, actually, it's it's had quite the evolution, my goodness. Um, so my, my initial writing career was very much based around lifestyle and culture. Um, and I launched one of the first lifestyle blogs in the UK, which was called Domestic Slattery, um, a name that was very much of its time. Um, we... It was a really, really popular newsletter. My first book was had the same name, um, and for various reasons, mainly needing a life outside of the internet, um, I closed the website in 
oh, I think I want to say 2014. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it was the, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and then for various, various reasons, I, I knew I'd been writing another newsletter based on a column that was on that website. Um, it was called the Friday Wishlist. And it was, it, it did exactly what it says in the tin. It was just a weekly shopping list of kind of independent brands and really, really nice pieces that I found. And the affiliate links in that email paid for my first half of my university year. Um, they they were huge. Mm. Um, although my MA was actually quite cheap, but it was like surprisingly. <laughs> so I saw some after that that were like £20,000. And I was like, I never would have gone back to university if that had been the case. Um, <laughs> but I'd, I'd had a dinner with all of the old writers and I was chatting to Laura about it late at night after Prosecco and something something woke me up at five in the morning and it was just this idea that DS could come back as a newsletter and I could not shake it and Mm. by the end of the day Laura and I had had that chat and we had decided to do it and and we came back as a daily newsletter. We hadn't met by the time we decided to go into business together. We we had this really odd meeting. She came down to London for work and we had what felt like a first date. Um, we had our business plan, but it was <laughs> we were so nervous because we're just like, but we love each other. But what if what if we don't like each other in real life? And it was like it's like we'd been kind of internet <laughs> dating for four years. Um, but we do, we adore each other. Um and um she is we've we complement each other's skills very much um but we we also kind of pick each other up where the other one isn't quite as strong and it's really fun working she's so funny and she's the best editor I know my goodness um but Mm. we knew after a while that daily newsletters are too much work for two people um so not long after we won our ppa award for the scottish magazine awards as laura's in dundee um we we decided that weekly was a better option um and then um a lot of a lot of changes happened a lot of very kind of personal changes happened during the pandemic and i realized that the name didn't serve us anymore um and we were holding on to mm. a legacy of something that that didn't make sense for us um but it was it was a really hard decision to change the name and to totally rebrand um mm. it was it was a name that built my career and it was a name that at some point I was very very yeah. fond of and I was fond of what it what it meant at the time but it it was right to leave it behind um I don't think it was doing us any favors especially not as our content was it's not behind a paywall but there's a barrier to it when you're when you're writing mm. a newsletter if there's no option to read um so we changed the tigers are better looking and earlier this year we moved from mailchimp to um substack um and that has been a brilliant decision for us actually um mailchimp is good in a lot of ways um but for discoverability it's not so much um and we realized that when we were we jumped on the newsletter bandwagon very early um and it was new and exciting and people would sign up out of curiosity and then substack really changed that they've sort of this this middleman between a website and a newsletter um and 
not being able mm-hmm. to see content was actually detrimental to us. Um, and now people can read the content and just go, yeah. I love this. I want this in my inbox. Even though they can read it online, um, which which I really like. I really like that people are still yes, engaging. But who, but who wants to do that? Yeah, but it's, like in a way, and I love, I do love that about Substack. You can, I, I can see someone's got a Substack email um, newsletter, then I can pop on, I can have a look at it first. Yeah. But then if I like it, I will always subscribe because... I don't um I don't I don't want to have to go searching. I don't want to have to rely on social media to get great content and I don't want to have to go searching on websites for great content. I'd rather just have a good selection coming into my inbox and I know it's just going to arrive like every Wednesday or every Thursday or whatever that's, every Friday. That's genuinely what I love about newsletters. Um I love that in the creation of them. They feel to me very old school blogosphere. Um, and you can tell how far that mm. dates back because I've just called it the blogosphere. <laughs> and it's that that community that you build up, it's people still have that now, but it's on Instagram or it's it might be on TikTok. I don't know. I still don't quite understand TikTok. Um, but <laughs> you, when you go into someone's inbox, it's it's really quite an intimate space to be in, and you you're jostling for attention from other newsletters, sure, but you're jostling for attention from that commission that you've just got, or that reminder about about a hen party, or an email from your parents that you were supposed to reply to, and that's that's a very cozy space to be in, and you only let yeah. in the newsletters that you really like, and it's. It's no one else's business when you unsubscribe. So you this is you true, get to keep isn't it, it private. It's a very private space. Yeah, yeah it's a very it's, private space. It is very intimate, and I'm um, I'm sure as most people are very fussy about who I subscribe to, and will very quickly unsubscribe if I'm not happy with what's yeah. coming into my and, inbox. And it um, means that and so I don't... it's like you can be it's much more discerning, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and it means that like as much as I can, I try not to worry about people who unsubscribe from newsletters because yeah. it's none of my business. Sometimes, sometimes like it gets to me. Sometimes I'm just like, oh no, we loved that newsletter, and and twenty people unsubscribed, but it's you're, they're not your people. And if you're trying to build an audience, well, then this is what I remind myself. I yeah, this is what I've been reminding myself. I've been changing my newsletter, and in fact, I'm going to do a big change this year. Um, and I, I haven't 100% decided what it's going to look like and I'm going to change platforms and I've got a whole lot of different things going on. Um, but I've been changing it quite significantly over the past six months. And when I get unsubscribes, I'm actually quite happy because I realized, oh, I was paying for that person to be on my list and they weren't my yeah. right person. So it's actually quite good that they're yeah. not on my list anymore because that's mm. the thing we forget is that, you know, you pay for the subscribers you have. Um, depending on the model that you're using, sometimes you're paying a flat fee for however yeah. many subscribers on some some platforms but um but what you want is the right people on your list not just a whole bunch of people very much so um i realized i haven't actually talked much about what what tigers are better looking does um so it's and the name oh, yeah. the name doesn't <laughs> give it away a huge amount so then the name actually comes from a gene <laughs> reese uh short story um you can tell i was yeah working on my gene reese dissertation when we decided that um it's not one of her best short <laughs> stories actually um but um it is it is a collection of we like to call it buried internet treasure um and just yeah. we will we scour the internet for fascinating stories about 
um, women's history and culture and design and food and drink and style and travel. And we, the research for that is so much fun. I, I love it. Um, we write about books a significant amount. Um, and we pull it all together in a weekly email and it, it's fun. It looks great. It's fun. It's it's all of the little bits of life that we want to make people's inboxes better. So so that is mm. what we do. Um, so yeah, um, tigersarebetterlooking.com or slash substack is where people can find that. I love it. It's my favorite thing to write each week. Um, God, you can tell oh, by my voice, I think, how much I enjoy doing it. I know, it. totally. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. And I will put the link in the show notes so anyone who wants to subscribe, please do subscribe to both newsletters. They are brilliant. Um, but, yeah, it's so true, isn't it? It's like um, it, the thing that I think is so exciting about newsletters is that you are the editor and you are in control. Um, there's no algorithm. It's your choices. It's what you get to write about. And um, And I think that's, in a way, I wonder if that's why they've sort of had this big surge lately, um, because there's, there's, a, there's an element of control and an element of being able to do what it is that brings you joy as a writer. I think that's a big part of it. Um, what I'm really interested in from a point of view of, kind of other writers having these platforms is for for a lot of them it's a showcase it's a shop window um and that's really interesting Mm. so laura and i um got a book commission based on i say based on but largely influenced by the work we did about excellent women in history and tigers Mm. and ds before it um when ds was daily we had a weekly issue of every monday called excellent women um and Bonnier asked us to write a feminist quiz book. Um, so at the start, we signed that contract just before lockdown started. And I would be forever grateful to it because, goodness, it gave me something to do. Um, we, <laughs> yeah, we spent the first lockdown writing about amazing women in history and um, and up to present day. And we had a really, really brilliant time. Uh, but I think they... Tigers is the place where I try and distill what nuclear fission means in two sentences because I want to write about Nice Mitner who never got a Nobel Prize even though she deserved it and she was nominated so many times and that's making something taking something very very small and making it big it's very much a part of what Tigers does which I love um but I also feel like going back to the idea of what how how I feel like newsletters feel like blogs to me it's like that community for a lot of women writers that community is very safe um it is quite Mm. that I don't want to call it a barrier but that extra step for angry people on the internet to read your content and be mad about it is like you don't get that with newsletters the people who are responding to newsletters are people who want you want your words in their inbox and it feels a lot safer than sharing an article on the internet or sharing a blog post that can go viral and I think it's there are a lot of men writing newsletters now like yeah the men men of white men of the internet discovered Substack and it's they've talk about it like they've been owning yes, they that did, space they? It's like, like no women were here from back from when danielle levy wrote daily candy back in 
I think it was 2002 that launched, maybe even earlier, I don't know. But women have had that newsletter space for a long time. They, they've claimed it. And while I think there's space for everybody on the internet, they get very much erased from that conversation. Um, the New York Times will write about mm. how they're a phenomenon without really talking to any women newsletter creators, um, which I find a little bit strange and a bit sad. Um it's I, uh, it's interesting because I, I I I have virtually yeah because I I um it always it it's always interesting when I hear things like that because it's not at all surprising in any way, but no. as you know a, but you know as someone who subscribes to multiple newsletters, I only pretty much subscribe to newsletters by women. I think with maybe one or two exceptions. Mm-hmm. So um I, you know for those reasons you know it does feel like mm-hmm. I think the content that I get through. Mm-hmm. The, um, the newsletters that I've subscribed to, it's it does feel like a free space for those writers yeah. um, in a way that perhaps it doesn't anywhere else. Yeah, and that's not to say that there isn't really interesting debate and discussion and contentious opinions in newsletters. And I think they come again from the freedom to have those conversations. Um, and mm. I think if I think about like um, what Jonathan Nunn does with the food newsletter Vittles, um, where he really opens that up to have proper food discussions about the state of the food media industry and also just how we approach food in general and the platform he gives to other writers as well. I think that's a really excellent way to look at how newsletters can be more than be more than about the topic they are. I think I don't know if that makes sense, but. Mm. The space to grow. And I think when you look at the evolution of a newsletter and how things have changed, um, it's it's really interesting to see. And I don't know what's going to happen next, but it's a space that I love and I will fill my inbox with goodness um, because it makes me happy. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm going to have to let you go because, I, I mean, I could keep talking to you <laughs> for hours about this. It's so fascinating. Um and um, there's so much we didn't even have time to touch on, but it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you um, Thank today. You so um, and so The Pajama Myth is out now, um, presumably anywhere good books are sold. Yes. It's, um, yes, you can. <laughs> um, and can, do, yeah. please, listeners, subscribe to both of these newsletters. They are absolutely delightful. Um, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me, Penny. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow. And please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast.